Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. This show contains adult subject matter and is meant for mature audiences only. A police officer crouches silently waiting for backup. 3542-3015. It's after midnight and neighbors are sleeping. It's quiet all around except for his own heavy breathing. Dispatch 3015. 10-4 DB officers in a 21 unit at this time. The last few weeks are a blur now. The fights, the slamming doors, the talk of divorce, the plans to reach out to lawyers and figure out what to do next. Right now, none of that matters. This is all that matters. It's building 49356. It's the top level. He's on a landing outside of his apartment, outside the apartment where something terrible might be happening. Stay outside. I'll be there in about two. Stay outside. Maybe something's already happened. He doesn't know. He knows that his wife is inside. He knows his two young boys are inside as well. He knows that minutes earlier, he heard what sounded like gunshots, two gunshots coming from inside. I believe I just heard a shot fired coming in my residence. I just came up the stairs two rounds. He can hardly remember moving through the apartment after hearing those shots. 3015, be advised of a smoke gun smoke. He knows he went inside, checked a closet door in his bedroom, and it was locked. And I can't get an answer to the door. He's not sure if he's safe, if his family is safe, if there might be more shots fired. Police area, I think my kids are in the closet too. Griffin, Georgia police officers arrive on the scene. They tell the frightened father and husband to stay where he is. They too find a locked closet door. They knock, no one answers. Police department. And outside the police officer waits to hear what's happened. What's happened to his wife? What's happened to Jessica? I'm Brendan Keefe. This is The Officer's Wife, Chapter One. Later that night, two Pike County, Georgia deputies turn down a dark gravel driveway. It's the home of Martha Wise and her husband, Phil. The stillness of the elderly couple's sprawling rural farm is shattered by pounding fists on the front door in the middle of the night. It's April 15th, 2016. The county sheriff's deputies stand outside on the porch in Zebulon, Georgia, just an hour drive south from Atlanta. My husband happened to hear, hear him. I'm usually the light sleeper, and why I didn't hear it, I don't know. And so I got up and started out, and he was coming through the door. And he was saying, these deputies are saying J.C. committed suicide. And I kept saying, no, no, she couldn't. No, because she won't even touch a gun. The grandmother of 13 is beside herself. Jessica shot herself in the head, not her Jessica. I just, it was just, you know, unbelief um, that, that that couldn't be happening. And I guess, too, you know, I had to be concerned over, you know, how my husband was going to accept that, you know, how, how he would do that. And I know that I really, 
for quite some time. I've, and sometimes I think I'm still in shock over it. But things aren't always as they seem. And the moments that led up to two deputies delivering that news of Jessica's suicide will shine a light into the shadows of a torn marriage, planting seeds of doubt about what really happened to Jessica Boynton on April 14th, 2016. Was the last person she talked to, the last person she saw, the last conversation we had. They go to Walmart and they have an argument, they come back, they're still arguing, and then this happens. That's crazy. When Martha gets the news that her granddaughter, Jessica, committed suicide in the early morning hours of April 15, 2016, she knows she has to start telling family. She calls Jessica's sister, Dusty. Uh, she, she came in the door saying, Grandmother, my sister's not dead. And I kept saying, Baby, your sister is. The deputies have been here and they told us that she committed suicide, that she shot herself. And she kept saying, no, grandmother, she's not. She's alive. And I kept saying, baby, no, they've just been here. They've just left, and they told us, you know, that she killed herself. Martha, better known as Grandmama, lives in Zebulon, next door to the small town of Griffin. That's where 19-year-old Jessica Boynton lives with her two young sons and her 20-year-old husband, Matthew Boynton, a Griffin police officer. He's the grandson of Spalding County Sheriff Wendell Beam. You could say a career in law enforcement was always in his blood, but before Jessica was an officer's wife, she grew up on Martha's farm. She came to live with us when she was three years old here in Zebulon, and she stayed here until after she grew up and had a baby and then left home. So she was here probably about 16 years. But I never tried to take the place of a mama. I was, I was grandmama. And, uh, and, and they knew that. She knew that. A mother of four, grandmother of 13, great-grandmother to seven, Martha says she's always had a full house. While Jessica was growing up with her brother, she lived with cousins and aunts and uncles as well. We had five here, and she was the middle, she was the middle child, so she got to experience some of the middle child syndromes. There was never a dull moment at Grandmama's. It was always a full house and even fuller backyard. Just outside, through the large kitchen windows, is a pasture of cows as far as the eye can see. We have cows, and then we have donkeys. And our latest addition is our baby calf, Allie, that we're bottle feeding. And so everybody's coming by to take a turn feeding her. Her donkeys visit Martha as a pair, begging just like the cows as she walks to the fence holding a large bag of treats. Did you know that they've got a cross on their back? that a donkey has. It's the only animal that has a cross, and that's because Jesus rode on it when he went in to Jerusalem. And I did not... Somebody called me and asked me, says, does your donkey have a... And I said, I don't know. She's got a dark... He's got a dark place. And I went out there checking, and sure enough, it's a cross that you can see. And while she was raising Jessica, life was no different. It was farm life. They each had a goat. We went to get a goat, one goat, and we came back with five. And they had to carry it. They had to let it sit in their lap coming home. The white-haired grandma adjusts her silver glasses on her nose while sitting on the back porch amid sprinkling of golden and orange fall leaves from the overhanging trees. She did. She got to where she was one of the best soccer players that we had. 
and I could not find, she played uh, softball here, but I couldn't find the pictures of that. She sorts and flips through an old box of memories, pointing out a petite, blonde, blue-eyed Jessica through the years, a dancer, a soccer player, and a little girl who loved to dress up. And when she first came here, she said very few words. She was three years old, but she said very, very few words. So we spent several years with a speech therapist. And when she was in the second grade, she graduated from speech. And I told Mr. Frank, the bad part was that once she started talking, she didn't ever shut up. <laughs> she was quiet. Uh, she liked sports, but once she figured out that she could do it, then that was, that was about as much as she wanted to do. Her favorite thing was crafts and doing, doing things. She liked to do things out in the community. They liked to camp out, but they liked to camp out here in the house. Uh, we wasn't really brave when we had to camp out. So I think one of her favorite things was that uh, she and her sister and a friend did camp out on the trampoline one time. But that, that satisfied that craving. But one thing Jessica didn't like to do was shoot guns with her pop-pop. She, she would not go. Uh, one, one particular time, we did go on a picnic. We packed a picnic lunch and went in the back to do some target shooting. But she, she would have the picnic, but she wasn't going to have any of the target shooting. And then when he would work with them out here, setting up targets and everything for them to shoot, she wouldn't go out. She stayed in, inside. Uh, all the other children... He went with them to take the gun safety classes and, and everything, but she would not she would not touch the guns, not even the BB guns. She, she didn't have, want to have anything to do with them. She just didn't like them, and she, and she didn't, wouldn't have anything to do with them. And they all, uh, because all the others, they enjoyed that, because when Pop-Papa would get out there with them, uh, they would have fun, uh, you know, putting up the targets and shooting. But she, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't have any, anything to do with it. Inside her living room, Martha is surrounded by framed mementos of grandkids, homemade gifts, and a wreath decorated with a W and a yellow and white chevron patterned bow. Behind her on a wooden piano sits a green hymnal and a doll with its porcelain hands together, praying. It's in that living room where Martha met her granddaughter's new high school boyfriend, Matthew Boynton. It was 2012. She was in the 10th grade when she met Matthew. She may have known him a little bit longer, but that's when he first started, you know, coming over occasionally. Uh, she wasn't allowed to go out very much. Uh, she, their dates were pretty much here at the house. Uh, sometimes he would come by and pick her up and carry her to the school. But uh, the majority of the time, if they went, it was with a group going somewhere or something because we didn't feel like that she was old enough to be dating. So grandmother had some old-fashioned ideas. So I wasn't always the most popular person for that. The two young lovebirds quickly became high school sweethearts, but her grandmama wasn't sure about him from the get-go. She vividly remembers meeting the then-teenage Matthew. Honestly? He always behaved over here and everything, but he, he was a very arrogant young man. You know, he knew, even then, that he was determined to be in law enforcement. 
But you just got the feeling that he felt like he could do no wrong. But I mean, we, we never did have any words or anything like that. I'm, I'm sure he might have got ill sometimes when I would say no, you know, her limits are this and she can't do, do any more. But we was that way with our girls. I was with our girls when they were growing up. In fact, we told them that they could probably date when they was 21. They did get to date a little bit before that, but not, not much. But after breaking that rule, Jessica breaks the news to her grandmama. She's pregnant. She, she, had to, she had to do a lot of growing up real fast. But it didn't, it didn't throw her off, you know, when she... They both told me that, that, that she, when she was pregnant with the first child, they both came in. That was a, a shocker. Uh, but I told her then, I said, you know, I'm disappointed, but I said, I love you, and I'll keep on loving you. And all the, y'all knew, all the other children, you know, they pitched right in to, to help and everything. And like I said, you know, she stayed here till after Tolan was probably a year old that she went and stayed with him for a short while, and then she, they were having some problems, and she came back and stayed until after she graduated, right after she graduated from high school college. When she came back, she'd gotten behind, uh, and, she, and she wanted to come back because she was very sad that she was going to graduate, and we wanted that. That was our goal, that she was going to graduate. But Jessica's own growing family doesn't change her plans for the future. She studies at home and graduates from high school. Georgia Cyber Academy, which is an online program in Georgia. And it was very good for her because she was, uh, she's the kind that can stay focused. The months go by and the seasons change and she graduates and Matthew and Jessica get married with their two-year-old son Tolan by their sides. Wearing a white veil and halter-style dress adorned with pearls matching her earrings, Jessica smiles in photos with Matthew, holding a bouquet of flowers, deep reds, yellow and purple with a sprinkling of tall, dried sprigs of grass. It's October 24th, 2015. Everything is falling into place for Jessica. But behind the smiles and showers of kisses to their toddler, there's something else. What her grandmama doesn't know is that Jessica's pregnant again. After giving birth to her second son, Tyler, the family of four moves into an apartment in Griffin, Georgia, about 15 minutes from her grandmama's house. Everything seems picture perfect. Here's this young mother building her life with her husband, the police officer, Matthew Boynton. He's hardworking and dedicated to the police department and his career. And by all outside appearances, it looks pretty good. But there's something else here something happening in the shadows and behind closed doors, a marriage that's in trouble, and no one outside knows what's going on except her closest family members. Matthew confides to some of his friends in the police department that all is not well in paradise, and Jessica confides to Megan Browning, the couple's neighbor and Jessica's close friend. Bubbly. She was happy. She's just the outgoing person. She had a smile on her face. No matter what it was, no matter what she was going through, she was, she was definitely one of those people outgoing and just a wonderful mother, very attentive to her kids, and 
She just seemed like a wonderful person, you know, someone you'd want to sit down and have a conversation with. Then 25, Megan first meets Jessica and Matthew when they move into her apartment complex. Okay, so you have two apartment complexes. And there's four apartments in each level. Mine happened to be on the very end, the top, on the corner. Hers was the exact same one in an opposite complex right beside me. Megan remembers the first time she talked with Jessica. Um, she was, she had both the kids, you know, one on the hip, the other one running around. And, um, I was pregnant and we were just kind of, we just kind of clicked from that point and became best friends. Um, shortly after I met Matthew, um, he was, even when I first met him, I still felt kind of off about him, but didn't want to say anything, you know, that's not my relationship, that's not my my partnership to say anything, but definitely seemed like a um, odd being. He seemed more the guy that's, it's all about me and his way or no way kind of type of person. She says Matthew was standoffish with an attitude that leaves a bad taste in her mouth. He was controlling. He was the, like I said, it was his way or no way. And he was very unattentive to the kids. It was always her having to do everything. It was her having to take care of the kids and feed them and all this stuff. And he was just the guy that goes to work and comes home, and if he came home. In Megan's opinion, Matthew dominated their home life. In every aspect of every way. You're going to take care of the kids. You're going to feed them. You're going to fix me dinner. You're going to sit down and shut up. And every day that I saw him with her, It wasn't him being verbally aggressive, but just if she said, can you help me or can you do this? It's, no, I got other things to do. And I'm like, dude, you're not doing anything. (laughs) And I went over to their house and he's sitting on the couch doing nothing and she's asking for his help. I ended up getting up and helping her. And I think that irritated him a little bit as well. You could see it in his face. He was kind of irritated at the fact that I actually offered to help her. You know, when you take somebody that's controlling in a relationship and then you throw somebody else into the mix that's willing to help, that control starts to fade away. Because now you can't, you be so controlling. And I think it made him feel powerless. But before she ever met Megan, a storm was already brewing inside the young couple's relationship and marriage of just six months. When I started, when she started confiding in me about certain things, you know, this is, go- this is going down, this is what's happening. I listened to her, but inside, you know, like I said, my, my feelings were quickly becoming correct. And... 
She would talk about the kids, how she wanted to do this. Um, she wanted to get a job. She wanted to move forward in her life. And it was something that we both, you know, sat down and talked about. You know, you don't just up and randomly say, oh, I want to leave. And then, <laughs> you know, you sit down and you talk to somebody that you truly trust to maybe get a second opinion on what's going on. But the second opinion was in the same agreement as her. It wasn't just a ear. We, we, I helped her investigate a lot of stuff, uh, find out information, found out where he was going, who he was talking to, all sorts of stuff. It wasn't just me listening to her. It was me helping her get some of this evidence against him. Evidence, she says, that would prove Matthew's infidelity. The messages between the mistress and Matthew, um, his GPS on his truck. I tried to, uh, I looked into finding areas that he had been to. Most of the history had been um, erased, rather shall I say. But I was able to pull up a couple of areas that he had been that were out of the ordinary, but not. And then um, just sitting down and going through all of this and saying, okay, what are, what are we going to do here from here? You know. Megan and Jessica are building Jessica's case for the couple's pending divorce. In fact, Jessica's been keeping a journal where she writes detailed notes about divorcing Matthew, custody, alimony, child support, documenting days when arguments erupt. But Matthew's not the only one with indiscretions in their young marriage. In fact, he's raising a child that isn't biologically his. Jessica had an affair right before they said I do to each other. From my understanding, you know, they had briefly split up and... So, I mean, they're split up. You can pretty much do what you want. This might be one of the strangest chapters in a marriage that's full of strange chapters. And we're not sure if Megan's right about this, that they were split up. According to Jessica, she'd been begging Matthew to take a trip to Perry, Georgia, to look at a wedding venue. Jessica's a young woman clearly excited about putting on a wedding gown and walking down the aisle with her high school sweetheart. When Matthew refuses to go, Jessica decides to go alone. But along the way, she has car trouble. A man she doesn't know stops and offers to help out. And somehow Jessica's trip to look at a place to say her vows with Matthew ends up with her sleeping with the stranger. A casual hookup, you might call it. And that hookup results in a child. There's no genetic test, but Matthew takes her word for it. And he ends up taking on the role of father to their second child, and the baby's actual father seems to fade into Jessica's past. But as time goes by, Jessica isn't the only one who's documenting their arguments. In fact, Matthew Boynton made it somewhat of a practice to call police over the years before and after they're married, documenting various instances of marital discord. But for what purpose? Is it for the divorce? Is he trying to compile evidence that there were issues and he's trying to report them or just fix them? It's hard to tell. But even with all of this going on, was Jessica truly at the point of no return? Now 29 years old, Megan, a pregnant mother of three, talks about the hours leading up to police discovering Jessica's bloody body 
inside a locked closet. She's like a little sister to me. I was there to protect her. You know, I knew she was going through some bad stuff. I, my natural instinct was to protect her. And then when all of this happened, I felt like I failed her as a best friend and as a sister. And it hurt. It freaked me out. And I wish till this day that I would have kicked in their door. Megan wishes she could go back in time and change what happened. I would have checked on Jessica a lot sooner. I would have made sure she was okay regardless of my fiance's opinion. But on that dark night in Georgia's, Jessica's family huddles together in the early morning hours, nothing seems to be making any sense. It's all unreal, like a nightmare they'd wake up from. She, she, wasn't, she wasn't depressed. Wednesday, I was with her all day long with a the baby. Then Thursday, she had to go back because uh, we had, uh, I had taken her to fill out an application for a job. So the next day, her grandfather, Pop-Pop, he, he took her back. They wanted her to come back for an interview. And then he took her home probably around 6 o'clock that night, time she got through and everything, everything that they was doing and everything. And so we were both, both with her. And then she had called me and she said, I've decided I want to go ahead and file the divorce myself. And I told her, you know, to call the lady and go ahead and set up an appointment. And she had called and she had one set up for Monday, the following Monday morning, to go and talk with her and start the proceedings. And even when, when I called her to let her know what was going on, she said, there's no way. I mean, she, she said, I, I would bet anything. She didn't have any signs of depression. She was, uh, you know, you hate to say that somebody's happy about something, but she'd finally come to the conclusion that it was not going to work. And so she had processed all this, and she had came to it. And so she was, she was fine with it. Jessica's friend Megan agrees. Jessica was planning her new beginning, not her ending. Nothing in my mind said that she was suicidal. Now, I, in my mind, I knew she was upset and dealing with maybe some minute depression, but who wouldn't when your husband's cheating on you and lying to you straight to your face about it? That would hurt anybody, especially if you've poured your heart out to somebody and they've stabbed you in the back like that. Anybody would be depressed about that. Suicidal? No. But she did have a light in the situation. She was a lot like me. Even though whatever she was going through was bad, she made it positive and continued to build from it. Even though she may have been upset or may have had a little bit of depression going on, suicidal was not the, the option to her. Her kids meant way too much to her. She would have never done that at all. But sometimes, as we told you in the beginning, things aren't always what they appear to be. In this case, did a rocky marriage trigger what happened inside that locked closet? Does anyone really know? And keep in mind, there are two sides to every story. Next time on The Officer's Wife. And I get a text from her. I don't remember everything in the text, but it said something about uh, loving the boys and 
She had been having suicidal thoughts recently. My heart sank. I looked out the window and I saw GBI and I'm like, oh my God, he killed her. He killed her. And that was, that was running through my head was he killed her. The Officer's Wife is a Vault Studios production in collaboration with WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta. The Vault Studios team includes executive producers Will Johnson and Adam Ostro and investigative journalist Jessica Knoll. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Visit our website at vaultstudios.com to learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. And you can find us on Facebook at Inside the Crime Vault if you'd like to talk about this case and learn about other stories we're covering. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. You can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at any time to speak with someone and get support. For confidential support available 24-7 for everyone in the United States, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.